You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of uh, two sets of lectures, uh, two cycles of lectures by Rudolf Steiner. Uh, it's Collected Works, Volume 156. Uh, inner Reading and Inner Hearing is one set, uh, which I have finished. This is now the second set called How to Achieve Existence in the World of Ideas. Lecture 7, entitled Microcosm and Macrocosm, Human Gestures and the Life of the World. Given in Dornach on December 13, 1914. Yesterday, I pointed out that much will depend on how at least the main concepts, the main ideas of the spiritual scientific knowledge of general spiritual life, culture, will be embodied. I attempted to think through, more or less, how it would be if human thinking accepted properly accepted, the principal ideas of the physical body, of the etheric body, of the astral body, and of the capital I, and made these ideas really fruitful for the most diverse areas of life and science. Today I want to refer to another example. What we distinguish as physical body, etheric body, astral body, and I are members of the human soul. We could also say of human soul life, which in a much higher region, of course, behave toward one another as the individual color nuances of our scale of colors behave in a much lower region. And just as there can be little real knowledge of the inner nature of light and its inner relations to the rest of the world, without conceiving this division of color nuances, there can be little true knowledge of the soul without having an idea of such members of the soul as I, astral body, etheric body, and physical body. However, the individual colors do not simply stand side by side, but follow a gradual transition into one another, so that one cannot always say precisely where one stops and another begins. And it is the same with the members of the soul. They follow a gradual transition one into another, and only our understanding separates them. Now it is important, for example, to take a good look at the transition between the eye and the astral body. What we call the eye of a human being really fades into the astral body, more or less, as the red nuance of the color spectrum fades into the orange nuance. Here we should refresh ourselves about what we are actually speaking about when we speak about the human eye. We must understand very clearly that the true essence of the eye is outside everything we can observe as the human body. The eye is in fact experienced only in inner experiences. As everybody knows, the etheric and astral bodies are not at all experienced directly, while the physical body is experienced through external observation, through external perception, 
and the I in its manifold experiences is experienced only in an interior way. For experience in the physical plane, this is absolutely the case. The astral and etheric bodies stand in the middle, between the physical body and the I, and are not directly experienced by people on the physical plane. The etheric body cannot be observed directly from outside without previous esoteric training. Nor can the astral body, which contains everything we often call subconscious or unconscious spiritual experience. The I is divided into the most diverse experiences of consciousness. We will pick out one such experience of consciousness, or better said, a conscious kind of experience. Conscious life is very diverse, but we will pick out a very simple, elementary kind of experience, the style and manner of the experience of taste. Just as the eye experiences sight, hearing, smell, and ideation, it also has experiences of taste or interaction with the external physical world. I mean the perfectly ordinary experiences of taste relating to food, not those one calls artistic. What we experience when we have the sensation of taste is an experience of the eye insofar as the taste experience occurs consciously for us. Therefore, when we bring food into our mouths and have an experience of taste, this taste experience is an experience of our eye. The diverse experiences of taste are in fact diverse experiences of the eye. Now, in the case of taste experiences, we can study the transition from the eye to the astral body in an interesting way. It is not difficult to establish that taste experiences die off to a certain extent when the food has passed a certain distance. Taste experiences die off then for conscious life. But this is only so in appearance. In reality, expressed in a gross sense, the taste experience of the mouth passes over into the taste experiences of the entire organism. The whole organism is basically permeated by taste experiences during the course of the food's penetration into our body, in the course of digestion and so on. And what we consciously taste is only a small part of the general tasting that our entire body experiences. Not only the nerve organs of our mouth taste, but our whole digestive canal tastes. And with the transition of the food into the organism, into the blood, and so forth, the whole organism tastes again what the digestive organisms have prepared for it. One could say the entire organism is permeated with experiences of taste. In fact, this organism is permeated and inhabited by experiences of taste in such a way that we can speak of differentiated tastes. Each organ has its particular, specific experience of taste. The stomach has its particular taste experience. Liver, lungs, and heart have their special taste experiences. Taste in general is differentiated into tastes by organ. 
Here we see how the sphere of eye experiences dives under into the sphere of astral experiences. For these differentiated tastes of the organs are subconscious. They do not come into a person's consciousness, but nonetheless they are infinitely important. For the normal development of taste experience rests entirely on the normal development of the tastes of the organs. In fact, aging consists partly in the fact that the astral body gradually becomes dulled in relation to the habit of taste. Understand me well. The astral body becomes dull in relation to the habit of tasting. I use the word habit, however, in the sense I used it yesterday. Gradually, over time, taste gets duller. When, however, the stimulus that finds its expression in the fact of taste is no longer exercised on the astral body and consequently likewise on the etheric and physical bodies, then the possibility no longer exists for the astral body to penetrate the life experiences of the etheric and physical bodies through experiences of taste. A good part of what we call aging lies in the fact that the astral body becomes dull to taste. When an individual human organ loses the fresh capability of taste, this means it does not it is not permeated by its astral body in the corresponding way, and diseases of the organ arise. Now, particular perspectives result from this premise. In the first place, the perspective which is important in a pedagogical and hygienic way, that it is not insignificant to stress having a well-developed instinct for taste. I have dealt with this once before when I spoke about the upbringing of children. It is important to understand that in eating one should develop a lively relationship to different foods, that whether you eat salad or spinach is not a matter of indifference that you should have a lively relationship to the differentiations in the world in the plant world between salad and spinach for what you experience in tasting salad and spinach are living connections of the macrocosm to the microcosm and these living connections carry on in the subconscious taste experience of the astral body which goes through all the organs People who become vegetarians, for example, should not connect it with a false asceticism and use their vegetarianism to dull themselves as much as possible to a friendly relationship to the essence of nature. <laughs> Rather, they develop the ability to taste fine distinctions in the individual kinds of food. You can do this particularly well as a vegetarian because then you become able to taste the fine cultivated distinctions between the individual plants and what you prepare as a dish from them. Of course, if you are not a vegetarian, you have more brutal distinctions among meat dishes. When we dull ourselves in this respect, we run the danger of extending this dullness from the conscious part of astral taste experiences into the subconscious part of taste experience. With that, 
we frustrate the living effects that radiate from the astral body into the lower parts of our organism. And it is a discomforting sight to go into many a vegetarian restaurant and see how people pile up a mountain of all possible mixed-up food and stuff it into their mouths without understanding, yet think themselves especially lofty in relation to what the ordinary person enjoys as a friendly relationship with a natural environment in the experiences of the palate. That is one thing. When the understanding of the external experience of eating is permeated with the understanding of the astral body and its way of working, a healthy way of eating will truly develop, and we will use it, because unconscious instinctual life will gradually disappear in the human race and must be replaced with a conscious relationship to the cosmic environment. On the other hand, another perspective emerges in that there really is a definite relationship between the entire plant world, which is spread out over the world, and the human organism, the microcosm. And this relationship is expressed in the tasting specific to an organ. It is really true, and no mere symbol, when I say that any plant that grows outside has a taste only for a very specific human organ. For the others it has none. A particular organ allows itself to be aroused by the forces of this plant, but not another. (laughs) If you just study these relationships you will gain something very important. I have told you on various occasions that the plant consists, when we consider its form, of a physical body and an etheric body. But when it grows upward, it stretches, in a manner of speaking, its blossoming into the surrounding astrality. And if we look over a bed of plants, we find astrality spread over the plants, astrality that belongs to the plants. Not every plant has its special astrality. But it is nonetheless true that the general astrality that is spread out over this earth, as the air is physically spread out, tends towards specificity. What sinks down, so to speak, from the astral body of the earth in a particular bloom, let us say the bloom of the lily, expresses itself quite differently than what sinks down to the clover. In this way, over all astrality, tends to make itself specific. This kinship, this relationship that exists between the astrality of the earth and the whole spread-out carpet of plants also exists inwardly between the human astral body and its individual organs. In this relation, too, the human being is entirely a microcosm. But an unhealthy relationship can arise between the human astral body and its individual organs when individual organs lose their living feeling for taste and grow dull. The relationship between the general astrality of the earth and the entire covering of plants is essentially a healthy one. And if we find the relations between individual plants and human organs, we can also find the possibility of stimulating organs once again and making them healthy from the inside out 
through the introduction of the materials of individual plants. For if we bring the materials of a particular plant into the human organism, we bring along with them the kinship the plants have to the general astrality of the earth. So when this kinship to the astrality of the earth is dulled in individual organs of the human organism, it can be stimulated once again, and in the human astral body as well, by introducing the forces of the relevant plants into the human organism. You can see the possibility of laying out a system of plants that corresponds in a certain way to human organization, and at the same time presents a rational system of certain medicines for particular diseases of the organs. We would, in this case, go beyond the purely empirical, experimental investigation and would truly be able, through making parallels of the tastes of the human organs with the forces of the plant world, to achieve a rationalization of plant therapy as a result. All these points of view come together in an uncommonly fruitful way when one is really willing to commit to making anthroposophy or spiritual science fruitful for life. And just imagine what wonderfully stimulating tasks for present-day life grow out of spiritual knowledge after the couple of experiments that it was possible to perform yesterday or today. We might only wish that humanity were not too lazy in the immediate future to devote itself to permeating science with what spiritual science can offer in each case. Certainly it is infinitely important to communicate the central teachings of spiritual science to humanity. For if these central teachings are not communicated, the foundation for further construction will be missing. However, instead of these central teachings being accepted in this way, many feel tempted to say the same thing over and over again in all sorts of new, badly written repetitions of what is already obvious. For once, we should pay attention to finishing the construction of the individual chapters of these central teachings and really introducing spiritual scientific teachings into science and life. I mention this because within our movement are a good number of people, and among them a few stand out, who find it more convenient to pass on and repeat over and over again what is already clearly stated in the literature, instead of getting down to introducing spiritual scientific knowledge into the fields that are particularly close to them. If you consider this, you will see nuances in what has been emphasized over and over. Spiritual science must become an all-permeating mentality of human life. If today we experience in such a painful way how human thought, human judgment and human action have led to a point that demands infinite sacrifice and on the other hand shows how human judgment and human feeling has ended up at a dead end, then that should be accepted as a significant sign of the times, a sign that a new enlivenment of the soul forces is necessary for humanity. 
we should regard that as the principal issue, that a new enlivenment of the essence of the soul is now necessary. What will bring along a more worthy time in which we can lead ourselves out of the chaotic events of the present day is less the laying out of this or that agenda, as was favored in the sad epoch recently gone by for us, than letting oneself be caught up in a lively way by spiritual scientific knowledge. The less we believe that anything like what we have to ward off today was present in any real area of European humanity, the more we will believe that we have a new future to expect and to hope for, a future of increasingly spiritual attitudes, and the more we will be on the mark. That an intuitive consciousness was always present in what spiritual science must bring to clear consciousness has often been touched upon, especially here in this place, and also supported with external proofs. Over and over again we must be reminded of how spiritual science is in a certain sense something radically new in our time, but nonetheless well prepared in all recent spiritual life so that wherever vigorous spiritual life is living, presentiments have appeared, not just of spiritual scientific knowledge, but of the decisive significance of spiritual scientific knowledge. The following is an interesting example. A European spirit, a thinker, once attempted to reflect on what influences had been especially significant for his inner life. He mentioned three relatively more recent spirits who had great influence on his life. Emerson, who has also been characterized in these lectures, Ruysbroeck, and the German mystic Novalis. These three spirits had a special influence on this Central European spirit, as he himself discussed, and he attempted to gain a certain standard for what must enter human spiritual life if it would really experience the necessary new fertilization. And this spirit then says something extremely surprising. He says that when you view, for example, Shakespeare or Sophocles in a certain way, you find that human conflicts are presented there. But in the end, if a spirit were to come down from another planet where experiences are entirely different, that spirit would not be able to arouse any special interest in what transpires about Ophelia, Wallenstein or Mary Stuart. That can interest people on earth, but a spirit from another planet would demand that human beings tell it something that does not interest only earthly beings, but rather interests beings who belong to the wider extent of the cosmos. And in the opinion of the person in question, there are not many souls who have something to say that could offer anything to a spirit who comes down onto earth. And among these souls, the thinker in question counts the poet Novalis. He finds the soul experiences in Novalis's poems so fine, so intimate, so much drawn out of what can only interest human beings, living not only in the time bound, but also existing and acting in the eternal, that a being from another planet could also take an interest in Novalis. I want to read you the words he wrote when he became acquainted with Novalis, or became acquainted with what experiences of the soul Novalis had to offer.
The words are very beautiful, so beautiful that I want to read what the thinker in question has to say specifically in reference to Novalis's experiences. Quote, but if he, the extraterrestrial visitor, sought other proofs, they would lead him to those whose works almost touch silence. Such authors would open the door to those domains where the human soul is loved for itself, without concern for the little gestures of its body. Together they would climb to those high, lonely plateaus where consciousness is heightened, and where all those who are concerned about themselves wander painstakingly around that monstrous ring which links the world of appearances to our higher worlds. Such proofs would go with him to the limits of the human being. For it is at the, the point where human beings seem on the verge of ending that they probably begin. And their essential inexhaustible parts exist only in the invisible, where they must observe themselves ceaselessly. It is only at these heights that there exist thoughts that the soul can possess, ideas which resemble it and are as imperious as itself. There humanity has reigned for a moment, and these dimly lit peaks are perhaps the only gleams that suggest the earth in these spiritual spaces. Their reflections truly have the color of our souls. We feel that the passions of the spirit and of the heart, to the eyes of an alien intelligence, would resemble the plaints of church bells. But in their works, the people of whom I speak have left the little village of the passions, and they have said things which can interest those who are not of the earthly parish. Those are truly beautiful, magnificent words. The thinker in question believes that he experienced this with Novalis, beautiful, magnificent words that characterize how humanity must really come to something that is directly connected to the eternal, that leads us out of merely earthly experiences into the experiences of the cosmos. The words I have read to you were spoken by Maurice Metterlink about Novalis a while ago, in any case not in the last few months. But you can see from it that everywhere among people who can reflect in the times in which they can think, a true real consciousness is present from within the spiritual world, which the development of humankind must really accept. I will offer, I will offer still another example. In spiritual science today we speak entirely consciously of how through initiation one can achieve an experience of oneself in the eye and the astral body separated from the physical and etheric bodies, a conscious experience of oneself that otherwise occurs in sleep. In this case, however, spiritual science is at the same time in the position of giving necessary information about the experience of death, for what the spiritual scientist experiences outside the body with reference to the physical and etheric bodies is indeed the same thing the soul experiences after death while it looks back on the physical body and the fate of the etheric body. So the spiritual scientist speaks in a special way about the viewing of the physical body and the etheric body dissolving into the world process from the point of view the soul attains to when it has gone through the portals of death. 
It means something infinite for the further development of all human consciousness and for the entire life of human spiritual culture that such ideas can pass over into the life of spiritual culture and that people will come to know them more and more. Ideas such as that when the soul has gone through the portal of death it looks in retrospect at its whole past life and what is happening to the physical body in just the way you look back in your memory at your experiences in ordinary life between birth and death. When it becomes second nature to us, or obvious, that the soul looks back at the experiences in the body, just as one now looks back at experiences of earlier times in the life between birth and death, something tremendous will have been achieved. And you will understand from different things I have discussed with you how necessary it is for all of humanity that such a consciousness be attained as fast as possible. Now let us just see, if we look to an intuitive understanding, whether these ideas, which are given so entirely consciously and in such clear outlines in elementary spiritual science, were not always entirely strange to the human race before spiritual science arose. Fichte gave a number of speeches in which he attempted to transform the educational system of his people, a transformation like the one Pestalozzi summoned up, only more universal. In these lectures, Fichte said that certainly many people could not keep pace with the idea that one could in a way form anew and re-enliven the human race with such ideas. Such people hang on to the old things they can imagine, and Fichte sought for a comparison to express clearly what they have learned and what they cling to. This comparison is quite remarkable. Quote, Time Parenthesis, he means all the people of time who cannot imagine that something new can come out of something old, close parenthesis, appears to be like a shade which stands over its corpse, from which a lord of diseases has just driven it out, and moans and cannot tear its gaze away from the sheath it formerly loved so much, and in despair tries by all means to get back into the shelter of plagues, Although the enlivening breezes of the other world in which the deceased has entered have already taken her up within them and surround her with warm breaths of love, although secret voices of her sisters are already greeting her with joy, by this he means the other spiritual beings that surround us, and welcoming her, although within her her soul is aroused and expands in all directions, to develop the grander form into which she should grow. But still she has no feeling for these breezes, or hearing for these voices, or, if she did have them, she has already risen up in pain over her loss, in which she believes she has lost herself. Is it not as if a person, coming from spiritual science, is taking the comparison from spiritual science of looking at one's corpse after death, Fichte said that in 1808. We see from it how everything tends in the direction of spiritual science and how spiritual science arises in the best spirits as a presage. But as this example shows, a presage that expresses itself in very specific forms. 
you will understand from what you are accustomed to hearing from me how such words are intended. But could not an entirely particular feeling arise in the souls of people when they read something like that, which was expressed in 1808? Could not a very particular feeling be arising in the souls that take seriously matters of the culture of humanity? Could not these souls also be feeling that after having such intuitions they need to hold on to them and finally make some real progress toward a spiritual scientific knowledge of the world? And then could not such souls perhaps feel shame for humanity? Because if only such feelings were to appear in a good number of souls it would be a great good fortune for the development of humanity. But I think that many souls will still for a long time to come, choose the easier path and accept what pleases them in such speeches as Fichte's, but not read the things that do not please them. And if one draws their attention to it, they will say, quote, All right, it is permissible for great spirits to be oddballs every now and then in certain respects. Close quote. And then they make comparisons that are really not taken from any kind of reality. It will be possible for all life to be permeated with the emotions spiritual science excites in human souls through its ideas. And really, our building came into being and will display the details it will contain for no other purpose than to indicate as insistently as possible how life can be permeated with spiritual scientific ideas. It is not intended that in this building a sin should be committed against a naive life and feeling of the human being. Those who emphasize over and over that artistic creation must take its course in the most unconscious possible way believe that they are not committing this sin against themselves or others. And, in truth, it is more comfortable when artistic creation takes place unconsciously than when it is raised into knowledge. For knowledge, when it becomes knowledge of the cosmos, is just as naive as the primitive unconscious, which for people's convenience is so frequently in life put into phrases like those I have just mentioned about what is necessary in art. Just refresh yourself about the following which you can conclude from many discussions, and you will also receive the impression that important impulses for artistic particulars can and must be given from spiritual science. If we look at a person in the light of spir the spiritual science of today, we certainly know that this individual has not taken form in the one-sided way presented by today's natural science. Rather, this person needed a Saturn, Sun, and Moon development to become what he or she has become. And we know also when we look at the external physical human form that whole generations of beings of the higher hierarchies have worked through long stretches of time and that their activity was specialized in the way we have described in the Saturn, Sun, Moon and Earth developments. We know that what appears today as a finished part of the human being, for example the head, first had to go through the sun, moon, and the whole previous earth development to become what it is today, that it had to evolve and be transformed, that it was first present during the sun development, 
that it reappeared during the moon development and was transformed, and that it was once again transformed during the earth development. If we consider then how the human being must actually be studied, we will begin to feel the complexity of this human organization and its relation with the macrocosm, and then gradually learn to know it. Today I wanted only to suggest something that will soon be accomplished. I mention it because it will lead to a concluding thought, which we will expand on in the next few days. We have, for example, members in our organism that in their configuration today still bear very clearly the original impulses of the ancient Saturn development, which are, however, transformed and reshaped so that we cannot directly recognize them in their present form without studying the Akashic Chronicle. Represented schematically, the bones surrounding the spinal column were first established during the ancient Saturn development, still in the element of warmth, and have been constantly transformed during the following developments. The bones attached as the rib cage were then articulated in the time of the moon development and are less transformed because their first beginnings do not lie so far back. And there's a drawing A on page 115 of the book. <clears throat> Other organs were added on in an upward position, first during the sun development and then transformed. What we today call the human skull, the human head, was established during the sun development and then transformed many times over. However, if only what the sun development gave the human being in regard to the skull had occurred, then human beings would have to carry the head in a way they cannot carry it, in fact as if it were always directed upward. Hence during the earth development, through the influence of the sun, a ninety-degree turn intervened, so that what before had to be directed upward is now directed as follows. Instead of drawing the sun arrow for the earth development in this direction, upward, we must draw it in this direction for the earth development, horizontal to the right. See drawing B, page 115. As part of the normal development, the human form has worked through, under the influence of the cosmos, the form of the head has been turned from being directed upward to being directed forward. Now, when the spirits who have remained behind in the moon development interpenetrate and permeate the human being, they bring along the striving to direct the head upward. People inclined to carry their noses in the air in an unpleasant way, as we say, are seduced by such luciferic spirits. That has its background in fact. It is a physiognomic, cosmic truth. And we entirely hit the mark when we say that those who carry their noses in the air have Lucifer sitting on the back of their necks. That is entirely true, and it will be infinitely important to know these cosmic relations. If we consider the exterior limbs, the arms and legs, the legs belong directly to earth development, are entirely subject to the earth. If the arms, however, had merely followed the earth development in their normal development, Human beings would only be able to let their arms drop downward. Since we can also raise the arms upward, we direct them arbitrarily toward the moon development. That is, we give them a luciferic character each time we raise them. 
For this reason those who have refined feelings feel each movement of the arms forward and upward as something that has a luciferic character. Let us keep our sights on that and think now of a person who bows the head and raises a hand at the same time, but in a way that holds both of these movements in one human gesture. The person lets the head sink and raises an arm. Sinking the head is an activity opposing the luciferic character of the head. Raising the arms brings the luciferic into the arms. However, now it is like this. While you allow Lucifer to flow into the arms and support the sunken head by the forehead on the arm, you redeem the luciferic powers, excuse me, you redeem the luciferic power that flows through the arm through the opposing effect of the Christ power in the head. In a way, you redeem Lucifer in the arm through Christ in the head. See drawing C on page 115. If you paint the human form in the right way, you express it in this gesture, the head resting on the arm. The person makes a gesture that expresses, quote, Lucifer is redeemed through Christ, close quote. Add to it something like a bending of the knee, and you sharpen the gesture. Raise both arms upward and press back the power of the raising, as happens when you fold the hands. Raise the arms with folded hands, and then try to marshal the Christ power against the luciferic upward-flowing power with the folded hands, while you, in a way, disable them. Human gestures become the expression for the whole life of the world, for the spiritual life of the world. We must feel how the arrangement of the human form can be immersed in art through such knowledge of the secrets of the cosmos. We can also ask what happened when the luciferic upward orienting of the head was turned forward in the earth development through the sun's influence and human beings stood on the earth with their heads turned forward. They became earth being, excuse me, they became earth beings through that. That which is not a being of the earth can therefore not have legs and feet in the human sense. Human beings do not receive the head and also the face from the earth, but rather from the cosmos. But the head arises in this form because it turns toward the earth. If we consider other genii, other spirits, we cannot make them with human legs. To give legs to spirits that do not belong to earthly existence is simply wrong, as we can really understand from spiritual scientific knowledge. And the art in our building should always acknowledge a debt to these feelings that come from spiritual scientific knowledge. You see, that this knowledge can really give a new impulse to artistic form, if spiritual science becomes no longer conceived as a colorless theory, but rather as something that will enter the human being as feeling and sense, then we will understand that it can have a fructifying effect on all efforts of the development of human culture. A small beginning in this direction will be made in our building. The end of Lecture 7